A couple things I want to mention. First of all, you won't be seeing uh, too much of Shane here, our student ministries pastor. He's He's getting ready to take a sabbatical, a much needed sabbatical. So he'll be taking uh, six weeks to just rejuvenate. Then beyond that, he's got a few camps he'll be doing this summer. So be praying for Shane. He has a great uh, sabbatical. And secondly, you know, when we were singing that hymn, Holy, 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 there's one line there, Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee. And I couldn't help but think of that shooting at that elementary school this past week, that we still live with the effects of sin here on earth. There's still darkness in the world. The Lord's kingdom is here already, but not yet. And please be praying for those families whose hearts were ripped into pieces um, this past week because of the events there in Ovada, Texas. So when I was about 21 years old, I was going camping with some friends, and we were going to camp up on top of a rocky precipice. This was in the New River Gorge area in West Virginia with the plan of going rappelling the next day. So we get up there, we camp out, and the the sun comes up. We'd actually set everything up in the dark the night before. I had no idea how high the cliff was we were camping on. And I remember the first time I went out there, and I just peeked over that drop. It was probably about 150 feet or so. And then one of my friends, I think I was like 20 at the time, 21, and he was probably about 18, 19. He was the one tying this great big knot that we were going to be using as we rappelled down off the face of the gorge. And uh, I remember looking at that knot, and this guy is a few years younger than me. started kind of wondering, well, does he really know what he's doing? And uh, it kind of hit me that, you know, I'm about to put my life in the hands of that knot, and I didn't know quite how I felt about that. started feeling kind of anxious. Because once you get down over the edge, you're pretty much depending on that knot. There's not much else you can do about it at that point. And it was a tense moment, and it took a lot of faith. And either that knot was going to hold, or it wasn't going to hold. And I wanted some assurance that that knot was going to hold. And about the same time in my life, there was another struggle going on, but the stakes were much higher even than life and death. It was about eternity and where I was going to spend it. You know, I'd, I remember I'd heard the gospel my whole life, but yet at times, especially it felt like in my 20s, I really struggled with whether or not I was truly saved because I believed in eternity after death, that you were going to spend it in one place or another. It was going to be heaven and it was going to be hell or it was going to be hell. And I had anxiety over whether or not I was truly saved. And I think if I were to poll the audience this morning, some of you either are experiencing that anxiety right now or you have in the past. And I think some of you have probably carried that burden too long. And what I want to talk about this morning is how can I be assured of my salvation? How can I be assured of my salvation? How do I know that I'm saved, and how do I know that that salvation will continue on with security into the future? The passage I want to look at comes from John chapter 10. John chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 22 through 42 of John chapter 10. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 10, starting at 
verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple and the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. You may be seated. We're continuing talking about our living hope, Jesus Christ. Walking together through the gospel of John and seeing that he had written these things so that you may believe, so that you may never perish, so that you may know that you're saved. And this morning we come to this section. And I want to look at our passage this way. First, we'll look at this heart of disbelief, this uh, display of disbelief among these Jews. And then we'll look at the guaranteed security of the believer. We'll look at the security explained and offered. And then we'll talk about some questions you should ask yourself if you ever find yourself struggling with the assurance that you're saved. So we enter this new setting, as the text says in verse 22, was the feast of of dedication. Well, what is this feast of dedication? Again, Jesus is coming in, uh, ascribing some new meaning to something. And this is an eight-day feast. It's known also as, as Hanukkah. You've probably heard of Hanukkah. And it commemorated a significant event that happened between the Old and New Testament. So you can't just turn to the Old Testament and see where this feast was commanded. It actually happened uh, to commemorate something that occurred between the two Testaments. It was a, a feast to commemorate the purification and rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus, also known as Judas the Hammer. People don't mess with you when you've got a name like Judas the Hammer. 
Uh, and it happened on our calendar in late December, early January in 164 B.C. Here's what happened. There was a Syrian invader that came, came in named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And he came in, he wanted to infuse Greek culture into that Jewish area. And this man, Judas the Hammer, he led a revolt against this man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus actually did something extremely sacrilegious. He walked into the temple and he replaced the altar with an altar to Jupiter. And he killed a pig on it, an unclean animal. And he desecrated uh, the temple. And again, he wanted to infuse Greek culture into Judea. But this man, Judas the hammer, Maccabeus, he led a revolt against these Syrians, and they, they chased them out. And uh, it became known as the Maccabean Revolt, and after three years, he defeated the Syrians, and he liberated the Jews. So such a success this was, this revolt, that it became a symbol of hope among the Jews that they would be freed. Again, that God was with them. And those were the silent years. They were desperate to hear God's voice again. No prophets came for a long period of time between the two testaments. So this Feast of Dedication, it was also called the, uh, the Feast of Lights because they had a lamp lighting they would do. You've probably seen menorahs that Jews would use. This was also the Feast of Lights. And, and no doubt Christ, again, was the one who brought the light and was bringing himself into this feast, this commemoration, this rededication and purification of the temple. So that's what's going on in the background. Then Christ, the text says, comes onto the scene. And he's walking on the colonnade of Solomon. It was wintertime. And this would have been a sheltered area from the cold weather. Others teach, other teachers did this as well. And then Jews, it says, gathered around him. And then look at verse 24. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ... Tell us plainly. That could also be translated, how long will you annoy us? And there's an ominous tone to this. The verb used there uh, when the Jews gathered, it's, it's kiklu, and it, it's the same uh, verb used to describe how the Romans would encircle Jerusalem when they were going to attack them. And up to this point, Jesus had not made an explicit public claim to be the Messiah. That is the one they were expecting to be their deliverer and their king. He'd said it privately to the woman at the well, but the reason the Jews wanted Jesus to make this claim, it appears, is so they'd have a reason to kill him. They were living out what they believed. It's clear from the Scriptures that unbelief is a willful sin. And it was then and it is now. And attacks on Christ stem from the sin of unbelief. And if these men believed Him, they wouldn't be attacking Him. So this unbelief displayed, it's the same thing that happens today. When people make attacks on who Jesus is, that He wasn't a literal figure, or if He was a literal, literal figure, then He wasn't God, that is stemming from the sin of unbelief. People discard Christ's claims to be God. They, then they feel comfortable attacking Him or attacking people who believe that Jesus is who He says He was. 
And they display that unbelief in their attack on Christ. But then Jesus begins to answer them, and he guarantees, he offers this guarantee of security to the believer. It's one of the most clear passages on the security of the Christian. He proceeds to respond in verses 25 and 26. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, that you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. He said, I told you. And what did he tell them? He told them that he was Messiah by the works that he did in his Father's name. But they were expecting a different kind of Messiah, uh, and ultimately they weren't his sheep. And what again comes to the surface in this passage is this idea that has challenged us for centuries that Christians, on the one hand, are 100% chosen by God. And on the other hand, they are 100% responsible to believe. It comes again to the surface here. That you're 100% chosen by God. At the same time, you're 100% responsible to believe. How do you know you're chosen? It's really simple. You believe. You put your trust in Christ. I'll even submit to you right now that you can choose right now to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do, guess what? You find out you're chosen. That's how it works. And, and I think most Christians, they, they struggle with this, this problem of the, the sovereignty of God, but also the responsibility of His people. And, and thinking Christians will you know, pick this up immediately. And, and every person who wrestles with this has to strike a balance between appropriate respect to both themes as they appear, especially in the Gospel of John. Uh, there's a there's an uh, illustration by C.S. Lewis that I think is helpful in this. Um, he, Rocky, he wrote about this in his book, Mere Christianity, and he provides this picture uh, of a child playing a piano. And his hands are guided note by note by an experienced piano teacher, an artist. And at first, the expert may play the melody, and, and the, the child's um, hands may rest on top of his while he's playing it. And then you get to the point where the child then may move their hands to the keys, but the teacher puts his hands on top of the child's while the piano tune is being played. And they keep operating together, the child under the guidance of the skilled hands. And the point here is that God continues to work on you and in you and through you in very powerful ways. And he grows our faith, but his work always invites our participation. Because you see the two, the two ideas pulling against each other, working together. And his work demands our participation. And the door to heaven is open for anyone who is willing to walk through it. God draws, grows our faith, gifts us with faith, and we are responsible to believe. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. It's a miracle anytime someone comes to faith in Christ. And in John 10, Jesus' sheep are those whom God has given into his hand, and they are also sheep who have decided to believe. As Lewis once said again, 
There's only two sorts of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Jesus reiterates this in verses 27. He'd said previously that his sheep know him and his voice. And look at verses 28 through 30. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And this is one of the greatest and clearest verses about the eternal security of the Christian. See, you didn't save you. God saved you. And we just accepted a gift that was extended to us. You know, it's, it's really like if someone said to you, look, there's a, a check in the office. It was written to you. It's for a billion dollars. It's there. It's got your name on it. It's been signed. The money's there. The only thing you have to do is go pick it up. That's your responsibility. But you didn't earn the money. It was given to you. But you still have responsibility in that. And then once you accept it, it's yours. And then you, when you put your faith in Christ, you become part of the body of Christ. I heard a story about this. It was a, a little lady talking about assurance of her salvation. And, and she was telling people, nobody can take you out of his hand. And somebody replied, well, well, what if you slipped through his fingers? And she replied and said, oh, no. She said, I couldn't slip through his fingers. She said, I am one of his fingers. And that's true. We are members of the body of Christ. And Jesus strengthened the promise by basing it on the will of his Father. He said, not on mine and your ability, but on the Father. And no one can snatch sheep from him. In verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. What is he saying? Now, he's not saying they're the same person. He's saying that... They are one in terms of action, that both he and his father are keeping the sheep safe. It's a joint effort, and he functions in union with the father. So we see we can gain security by understanding that when we believe that we are also owned or kept safe in the grasp of the father and the son. And no one can take you out of that grasp. No one can remove you from it. And it's something to be enjoyed. It's something that you can find rest in. It's being in this eternal grip that isn't going to let you go. Then Jesus further explains the security and he offers it. And you can tell by the reaction of the Jews that that he had just made a very strong statement. Look at verse 33. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. They're ready to stone him. It's not because of his miracles. They're ready to stone him because he's made this claim. He's saying, I'm as much God as the Father is. Then he's either God or he's a blasphemer. So they either have to believe that he is who he says he is, or by law they have to stone him. There's nothing in between now. Jesus would answer them in verses 34 and 35. Listen to his words. 
Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken? Let's pause there for just a minute, because what in the world is going on here? Well, by law, he's talking about the entire Old Testament, which was the Bible at this stage. The New Testament is being formed as he speaks. And then the phrase, I said you are gods, that actually comes from Psalm uh, 82.6. And the point Jesus is making is that Scripture proves, one, that the word God, little g God, not big g God, little g God, is used to refer to others uh, than God himself. Now, exactly who these others are is pretty hotly debated. There seems like there's, and I, and I hate to be one of those what they call possibly preachers, and that it could possibly be this or it could possibly, but in this, for this text, I'm going to have to be one of those possibly preachers. Some of those, uh, some would say that, when I say some scholars, commentators would say that this is a reference to the judges in the Old Testament, um, that these little g gods, uh, by the way, they were, they were judged like men too. We see in the context of Psalm 82 that these little g gods were also judged uh, for their failures and they would die like men. So it could be the judges of the Old Testament who represented God but were corrupt. Uh, it could be angels who were divine beings who fell into sin. I actually think there's pretty strong uh, evidence of that. If you, if you really want to read, I, I read excerpts of a very long paper someone had presented as an argument on why it could be angels. I'm sparing you uh, from that now. If you're interested, though, talk to me and I'll get that to you. There's also a third possibility that it's Israel itself because they were acting like gods in the sense that they got the law and were the ones to whom the word of God came, but then they went and worshipped a golden calf. So, those are possibilities, but, but the point is, is that Scripture proves that the word God is legitimately used to refer to others than God Himself. And if there are others whom God, who wrote the Scriptures, can address as little g God and sons of the Most High... On what biblical basis should anyone object when Jesus says, I am the Son of God? So look at verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Jesus is saying, look, no one in the world can proclaim to be the Son of God like I am the Son of God. If anybody in the universe has the right to be called that, he's saying it is me. Blaspheme means to, to revile and, and slander God. Then in verses 37 and 38, Jesus explains. He said, look at the evidence. He said, look at my works, the miracles. If I'm just verbally telling you I'm the Son of God, I know that doesn't hold much weight, but look at what it is I've done. Learn from what I, <clears throat> I did. Continue to learn from them. He was doing the same kind of good works that God the Father did. And he shows his love and his compassion and his divine power and, and what it is he's doing around this land of Judea, showing them that he's the son of God. Same traits show up in his works and the Father's. His ultimate work is what he did on the cross to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. And we trust in what Christ did, the miracles and the eyewitnesses. We trust in who he is, both. One of the reformers, uh, Martin Luther, he wrote about the work of Christ, not just in forgiving the little sins, but Luther makes it a point that Jesus also forgave the big sins. 
I want to read part of, of what he'd written about this. He said, we're not to look about on our sins as insignificant trifles. On the other hand, we are not to regard them as so terrible that we have to despair. Learn to believe <clears throat> that Christ was given not for little imaginary sins, but for mountainous sins. Not for one or two, but for all. Not for sins that can be discarded, but for sins that are stubbornly ingrained in your behavior. Practice this knowledge and fortify yourself against despair, particularly in the last hour when the memory of past sins assails the conscience. He said, say this with confidence. Christ, the Son of God, was given not for the righteous, but for sinners. If I had no sin, I should not need Christ. No, Satan, you cannot delude me into thinking I am holy. The truth is, I am all sin. Now, this is Martin Luther talking, one of the reformers. He said, my sins aren't imaginary, <clears throat> but sins of unbelief and doubt and despair and contempt and hatred, ignorance of God, ingratitude towards him, misuse of his name, neglect of his word. And also dishonor of parents, disobedience of government, coveting another's possessions. He said, I haven't committed murder and adultery, theft and similar sins indeed, but he said, I've committed them in my heart, and I'm a transgressor of all the commandments of God. Then he goes on to say one, one more piece. He said, because my transgressions are multiplied in my own efforts at self-justification, rather a hindrance than a furtherance. Therefore, Christ, the Son of God, gave himself into death for my sins. And you know what? Chad has, this list could apply to me as well as it could anybody. And Jesus came not just to die for the little sins, but the big mountainous sins, the big ones we commit. All of them. And to believe this is to have eternal life. The people are going to try to arrest Jesus again. He escaped. He went to where John the Baptist was baptizing. The people responded again in verses 41 and 42. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many people believed in him there. If you find yourself then worried and feeling anxious about your salvation, I want to suggest a few questions you could ask yourself. This is helpful for me. If I ever find myself anxious, I will say, uh, as I've gotten older, I really don't think much or I don't find myself worried uh, so much about my salvation. Um, but if you do find yourself feeling anxious, just a few questions. First of all, what do you believe? Just ask yourself, what do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is God, that you're a sinner, that he paid the full price of your sin through his death, that he's the son of the Father that came to die for our sins and he was resurrected? If you say, okay, yes, I believe that, well, guess what? That really is the content of the gospel. It's a very simple message. And if you're asking yourself, well, do I believe it enough? Well, it just takes a little mustard grain of faith. Whatever the tiniest amount of faith is, is all the faith it takes to be saved. And notice, I didn't ask, and I wouldn't, well, can you name the exact time and moment and place you were when you said the sinner's prayer? Because it's not an essential piece. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it say if you remember the exact moment of where you were when you heard the gospel and you walked down the aisle, then you're saved. No, you don't find that. What do you believe right now? And then secondly, who saved you? Who is it that does the saving? He does the work. He paid the price. And if you're concerned about how well you're doing about not sinning or you committed a particular sin, he knew you'd keep sinning after you trusted him. Confession continues after we initially put our faith in Christ. It's not your ability to not sin that keeps you saved. That is not what keeps you saved. It's the power of God that keeps you saved. It's just your job to trust in what he did. So who saved you? God saved you. And then finally, at what point does God stop holding you? When does God stop holding you? Is there a moment in time? There is no moment in time when God stops holding you. You know, that woman I mentioned earlier, she recognized that little lady that was talking about security of salvation. She recognized she was part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 tells us, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. So to sum this up, trust his grip over your feelings. Trust his holding you over how you may feel about him holding you. And once you are saved, you are eternally saved. Never does he let go of you in his grip. And one of the most um, powerful images, I read a story about a, um, a man who was, he was actually describing his wife. Uh, she and a neighbor girl were playing together in some woods behind their homes, and the neighbor girl wandered um, from the path and stepped into a whole nest of ground bees. And the bees, the bees started swarming around them, stinging the two girls, and they started screaming for help. And suddenly, out of nowhere, as the story goes like Superman, her dad came crashing through the woods, leaping over falling logs, hurtling vines and brushes. He swooped a girl under each arm and tore through the woods at full speed, getting away from the bees. And as he ran, the father's grip bruised the children's arms they were getting scratched by the branches, and thorns were grabbing at their clothes and skin. The rescue hurt, but it was better than the bees. And this is an image of our Heavenly Father. He sees the danger, and before we even call out, comes crashing into our world from some throne above the universe, hurling galaxies and, and the infinite expanse of time to come into our reality and take us from spiritual danger. And the rescue may hurt, but his goal is always to save us. And the motive is always his love. Let's pray together. We are thankful that we have such a good father. Father, thank you for making a way of salvation. Thank you for holding us eternally in your grip. And Lord, I pray right now for those who maybe came in wondering or struggling with whether or not they were saved. Lord, I pray that they would understand that you do the saving. We simply trust in what it is you've done. And by trusting, we are held securely in your hand. Help us to persevere. Grow our faith that we would trust you more and more every day. 
We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your obedience to obey your Father and come to earth to sacrifice yourself, to be tortured to death for our sins. And God, I pray for anyone here today who's not yet initially put your trust, their trust in you, that they would do it today. This in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you're in need of prayer today, I would love to pray with you. If you just make your way down to the front, otherwise, have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll see you soon.